Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 3 as we continue our walk through the book of Romans. I want to uh, call one attention to one thing that we sang today. I, it's, it's listed there in the bulletin. I hope you picked it up. As we sang it, it's something we have not regularly done, but something that we want to regularly do. And that is we sang a psalm. You know, the, the 51st Psalm. I hope you recognize that. And you've got it in your order of worship there in a, in a sheet, little piece of sheet music. So if you want to sing it some more, you can. It's a very familiar tune. We know that tune. And uh, we sing it with other hymns. But this one just encapsulates the, the truth of Psalm 51. A, a psalm of confession, a psalm of repentance, and a psalm of cleansing which fits right in with what we're going to talk about this morning out of Romans chapter 3. David was confronted with his sin, he repented of his sin, and he called out to God to take away his guilt and take away his sin, wash it away as with hyssop, if you will, a harsh cleansing instrument, and and make him whiter than snow. Well, Paul is concerned in Romans chapter 3 that we understand what it is that has happened at the cross and how what has happened at the cross brings about our cleansing and our, our making being made clean before God. Paul has taken chapter 3 to give us, if you will, the dark background. The darkness of our sin. The, the, the total depravity of man. The, the total resistance of man to the truth of God. And if you read you know, verses... Uh, uh, 10 through, uh, really 9 through, uh, right on down through 18, you, quoting Old Testament scripture that we looked at, we saw that we are legally in sin, our minds are captivated by sin, our motives are carried out by sin, our wills are enslaved to sin, and our tongues just speak like serpents with sin. Sin affects our relationships, and sin affects our attitude toward God. I mean, I don't think that the apostle could have painted a more bleak picture than he does in those verses. And, and he goes on to say, you know, whatever the law speaks to, whoever the law, whatever the law speaks to, we're under the law. And, and the law cannot save us. The law cannot do for us what needs to be done. The only thing the law can do is say, look, there is your sin. Look, there is who you are. Look, that is what's taking place in your life every day. You ought not do that, but we continue to do it because of the sin that indwells within us. He'll deal with that in chapter 7 at length. But here he's concerned to show that, as we said two weeks ago, the, the pagan is guilty before God, the moralist is guilty before God, and the religionist is guilty before God. All men, and he says there in the verse from, that we're going to look at today, one of the verses, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, for the last three or four weeks, we've been looking specifically at verses 21 through 26, and that's where we're going to go again today. I appreciated Pastor Scott's message last Sunday on, on this passage and talking specifically about the redemption that comes uh, from him through his work. Today, we want to focus on, cha- on verses 25 and 26 in this particular section. Hear the word of the Lord from from Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. But now, 
But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. We looked at that weeks ago. The law and the prophets pointed to the gospel and to the coming of Christ. The passage that Pastor Todd read this morning from Galatians chapter 3 talks about how it has been pointed to from the very beginning. It's been placarded even through Abraham. And we'll get to Abraham later in Romans. He said the prophets and the law bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ, for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forth as a propitiation by His blood. To be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and also be the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, teach us the great truths of this passage. Remind us of them. Burn them on our hearts that we might not sin against you. Thank you, Father. For we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Paul has been carefully laying the argument. We called it a legal brief almost as he comes almost like a lawyer to present his truth and be sure that we understand it very systematically, very carefully. Paul has been careful to say that the source of our justification, the, the source of our being declared righteous, the source of our, uh, that righteousness of Christ being imputed to us is God and His grace. It, it's not anything within us. It's nothing that we can conjure up. It's nothing that we can work toward. But the source of our justification is God and His grace. And just as clearly he wants us to see and to understand that the ground of our justification is Christ and his cross. That, that on the cross we have there the ground, the, the foundation, if you will, of our justification before God. And that's what Paul is dealing with in these verses that we just looked at, these six verses. He, as, as Luther called this, this is, the, this is the center point of the whole gospel, maybe the center point of the entire New Testament. Because it really shows us the breaking forth of God's grace and the breaking forth of God's goodness and the breaking forth of God's salvation and justification that is found only in Jesus Christ. David Platt talked in that video about Nepal and his, his, his grief over coming back down and seeing those, those funeral pyres burning there by that that so-called sacred river and how they thought if they burned their, their, their loved one's bodies there and the ashes fell in the river, that that river aided their reincarnation. It aided them getting back as something better in this life to do it all over again. And he talked about the, the grief that he felt when he saw that here were men and women who had no hope in Christ Jesus. Men and women who 
not only didn't have any hope in Christ Jesus, they, they really didn't even have any knowledge of Christ Jesus. They'd never heard. They'd never been told that God came in the flesh and dwelt among us in order to show us the Father and in order to die in our place. They, they never heard that. So they think they've just got to get in this endless cycle of reincarnation until somehow, someday, someway, they become perfect, if you will, through the source of incarnation or reincarnation. Paul would want us to understand that there is no reincarnation, but there is incarnation. There is no coming again for us just because we've gone through some kind of cycle, but there is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And in his incarnation that we're celebrating in, in this month of Advent, thinking about his coming for the first time, that there is in that, in that incarnation the hope for all who believe and place their trust in him. That's a glorious truth, and, and that's what Paul is wanting us to see here. So he, he talks about how, in the background is, it's all sinful. It's all sin. And we have to see the glory of God, and we have to see the beauty of Christ in, in front of the background of that darkness. I, I don't know if you went outside last night or not, but I went outside, and, and there's the most, there was the most beautiful full moon. Uh, they say tonight it's going to be even better going to be a super moon tonight whatever a super moon is so when the moon is closest to the earth the center of the moon is closest to the center of the earth and and it's supposed to be absolutely brilliant but let me tell you something you won't see that this afternoon because the sky will be lit by the sun and there'll be a lot of light out there and, and you you won't be able to see the moon but as darkness comes and the sky darkens behind it and that moon is there in, in front of the darkness, the darkness will only serve to show the brilliance and the beauty of the moon. And it's our sin that provides the, the background, if you will, of darkness, whereby we can see the glory and the radiance and the beauty of the incarnation and the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, I want you to see that. I want you to know that, that we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I want you to see that He redeemed us. He, he overcame the sin. He bought us. He paid the price through His Son that we might have life and might have it with Him and might know Him. And, and then He comes to that verse 25 that I want us to really focus on today. And I want you to see, first of all, those first four words. Those first four words are words that we tend to sometimes just kind of gloss over, just kind of pass over, because we want to get to the good stuff like propitiation and in his blood and, and faith and God's righteousness and all that. We want to, so, so just those four words that started out, you know, that says, whom God put forward, whom God presented, whom God showed us by his propitiation. Whom God put forward is the key to understanding the doctrine of justification, the doctrine of the Christian life, the gospel of salvation. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now, if you're reading some other translation, I'm reading the English Standard Version here this morning, but... And if you're reading New American Standard, you'll have propitiation there. If you're reading other versions, you might have something like expiation. 
uh, a word instead of propitiation as expiation. As uh, another translation, you have the NIV, it might say God presented him as an atoning sacrifice. Well, there, there's nothing wrong with either one of those statements. They're just not full enough. Propitiation gives the fullness. Expiation carries with the idea that, that God took away something. That God just took away our sin. By his work, by his grace, he, he expiated. He, he took away our sin. And, and an atoning sacrifice points us back to Leviticus chapter 16 and the Day of Atonement. In Leviticus 16, if you read that carefully, and I would encourage you to do it later. I won't take time to read it now. But all the, all the, the sacrifice and all the, uh, the rituals is presented there for the Day of Atonement when the high priest would go in and would sp- sprinkle blood on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies as an atoning cover or an atoning sacrifice that the people's sins might be atoned for for that point. Then they would take the goat and they would take him out into the field and they would symbolically lay their hands on him as laying on the sins of, of all his people and they would take the goat out of the wilderness he would go and fall over a cliff and die as a scapegoat taking away the sins of the people. All those are, are, are beautiful pictures, but they're only pictures. They're not efficacious. They don't do anything. They just show pictures of what is yet to be accomplished, what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 3. But when Paul uses the word propitiation, and the reason that word garners such opposition in some scholastic circles anyway, I mean, I know it's not a word you use every day, Maybe you can use it tomorrow. I don't know. You can find a way. But, but the word propitiation carries with it a much deeper meaning. The word propitiation means that the wrath of God, which Paul talked about extensively in chapter 1, that God's wrath is poured out toward all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. God's wrath is being poured out on all that, and there is no escaping that. Paul says, I want you to understand that in the death of Christ and in, in the gift of salvation by His grace and your faith in Christ, there is an averting of that wrath. There is a turning away of that wrath. There's moving it away from you, the sinner, who deserves that wrath because God, through Christ, has absorbed that wrath. Now, some scholars say, but that's just not a good word to use. It's not a good word to use because the pagans use that word. They constantly talk about propitiating the wrath or the anger or the capriciousness of the gods, false gods. And they would talk about how, you know, that just isn't a way to talk about God. He's not like the gods who are angry and capricious and all, and he's really not. But to understand what really happened on the cross, and that's really the question we're trying to ask ourselves and understand this passage, what really, what exactly happened on the cross of Christ 2,000 years ago, We have to look at that word, propitiation. First, we need to ask, why is it necessary? Well, the the pagan answer would be because the gods are bad-tempered. They they just don't get along with anybody. They're they're capricious. They have moods, and they have fits, and they go back and forth. And so they have to be propitiated, those pagan gods. The Christian answer is, though, because God's holy wrath rest on all sin and all evil. It's his nature. God is not given to fits of anger or or fits of capriciousness. God is not one who 
one day goes this way and another, go, another day goes that way. God is a God who has holiness as his being. And sin is something that his holiness must be against. Do you understand that? That's vitally to under, vital to understand exactly what happened at the cross. And so the Christian answer is God's wrath is being poured out. Paul dealt with that extensively in chapter 1, as I said. And so the Christian says propitiation is necessary because we are all sinners. We are all under the condemnation of sin. Period. Secondly, we have to ask the question, well, who, who undertakes to do the propitiating? If we're all under it, how do we... How do we experience this propitiation how do we know it well again the pagans would say well we do we, we have to you know we've offended the gods so we must appease them we've we've offended the gods so we have to do something in hopes that god the gods will uh, will forgive us and will let us pass this time the christian answer to who undertakes the propitiating is that we cannot we cannot placate or satisfy a righteous God, a holy God, and his righteous anger in our own doing. Nothing we can do. We, we can't do enough good works. We can't do enough religious ritual. We can't do enough confessing. We can't do enough anything to placate him. That, that his wrath is poured out towards sin and it must deal with sin and we have to absorb that wrath or someone else has to absorb it for us and so Paul says whom God put forth God in his undeserved love toward us has done for us what we can never do for ourselves God has presented him that is Christ as a sacrifice of atonement for the propitiation of our sins Wow. When you grasp that, it will captivate your life. When you grasp that, you will understand what real thanksgiving is all about. It's not about turkey and dressing. It's not about just being with family. I enjoyed time with my family last week in Alabama, but it's, it's, not, about, it's not about that. When you understand the power of God's work in Christ on the cross in bringing about propitiation, that is, all of God's wrath that was due to me, every single bit of it, has now been diverted away from me because Christ took it on himself. He absorbed my wrath. By his blood. By his blood, he took a blood sacrifice, the blood of his own son to do it. So it's necessary because of our sin. It, 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 God undertakes the propitiation, doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. And, and then thirdly, we have to ask the question, how has it been accomplished? The, the pagan answers it quite simply. We have to bribe the gods. 
We have to trick them into thinking we're better than we are. We have, to, we have to somehow give them sweets or vegetables or animals or even human sacrifices throughout history in order for them to be propitiated, for them to be satisfied. But that satisfaction is only for a time, only for a short time. The Christian answer is much clearer. The Old Testament sacrifice was instituted not by Moses, not by Aaron, not by any man. It was instituted by God. And while it was only a picture, while it was only a type pointing to that which was yet to come, pointing to the fact that Christ was coming, and and that what was taking place there, even in sprinkling the blood on the mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant to cover up the sin of the people for a period of time, Even that was saying, but there is yet one coming. As Isaiah said in Isaiah 40, there is one yet coming who will take away the sins of his people and who will turn the wrath of God away from them and absorb it himself. It's given that we might see it. Given to point forward to the fact that that there would yet be a time when, when... when all of that would be accomplished. And now we have the joy of looking back on it. Now we have the joy of looking back to a cross through the eyes of a manger perhaps, but always looking beyond the manger to the cross. Say thank you, Lord. Thank you for initiating. Thank you for accomplishing Thank you for doing what we could not do for ourselves, that you put forward Jesus Christ as a propitiation by his blood that we can come to by faith. Not by ritual. Not by deeds. But simply by faith. And Paul makes clear that that faith is not even our own accomplishment. That faith is a gift of God in Ephesians chapter 2. We don't want to think that we can't do any of these merits of religious things, but we can do this one merit of faith and it makes everything all right. It's his grace and his work in propitiation that brings us to that point. So, so Paul talks about in here what he has done, what God has done on the cross. Redemption, salvation, justification, showing the righteousness of God that is a righteousness from God to us, imputed to us by God himself, clothing us in the righteousness of Christ, taking our sin and giving us his righteousness. And you go on and on and on, talking about the the beauty of what was accomplished on the cross. But Paul said, I want you to understand this. He uses three terms there that just don't miss it. I've dealt with one in depth, propitiated. We've already dealt with redeemed, but the three things he's done, he's redeemed his people. He paid the price. If you are Christ, if if you belong to the family of God, you need to understand you've been bought. Paul says, I am a doulos of Jesus Christ. I'm literally a slave of Jesus Christ. Why am I a slave? Because I thought, hey, it'd be a cool thing to be a slave of Jesus Christ. No, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ because on that cross, he purchased me. 
saw a church sign this week. You know how church signs bug me when they don't talk about the gospel? It said, to be a winner, all it takes is everything you are and everything you have. They didn't put a verse in a chapter to go along with that, because they can't. Because that's all self-doing. That's all giving to myself in order to be a winner, whatever that means. I'm not out to be a winner. I'm out to be a disciple. I'm not out to be a winner in this world. I'm out to be a, a faithful follower of Christ. Acknowledging what he has done that I could not do. He redeemed his people. And he propitiated his wrath. He turned his own wrath away by the death of his son. He did that for us because we couldn't do it for ourselves. And then finally he said he demonstrated his justice. It was to show, verse 26, it was to show his righteousness in the present time. Now he says to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. That is in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, pointing to the coming of Christ. He did not treat sin totally as he could have. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they said if you eat of that fruit, you will die. And and they did die at one level, but, but God had every right to the moment they ate of that, that fruit and wanted to be like him to have said, you're, you're toast, you're, out, you're done for, and totally annihilated him. Isaiah in the temple, when he saw the vision of God, he fell down and he said, woe is me for I am undone, I'm ruined because I've seen the Lord and, and I'm a man of sin. But God didn't destroy him. In the old covenant, he allowed the sacrifices and the rituals that were pointing to something else to believe in. And all those who believed in that which was yet to come were justified, made right. We talked about that with Abraham later. We talked about it in Galatians chapter 3 that Pastor Todd read. Do you realize Abraham was saved because he believed in Jesus? Same way you are. No difference. He wasn't saved because he was a good guy. He was saved because he believed in Jesus Christ. Paul says that several times, and we'll look at it. But it says, he passed over those former sins, which he could have annihilated the people for, but he did that so he could show his righteousness at the present time in the cross of Christ so that he might be just and might be the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. So that he might be just and holy and righteous because he is. But by sending his son as our propitiation, as our redemption, as our savior, he might remain just, declaring that sin be burned up by his wrath, be destroyed by his wrath, but that his son would take that wrath in our place he did that to show the word to show there literally could be translated to to demonstrate or to to placard or to to put on a billboard he, he did that to speak it large and loud among his people paul said in, in galatians you know how have you foolish galatians how have you so quickly 
left the truth of the gospel where Jesus was presented to you, placarded before you, declared before you so clearly. And yet you turn back to legalism. Paul said, I want you to know God has demonstrated his justice and God has demonstrated his salvation in the death of Christ. He is just, holy, righteous, and he is the justifier. We can't justify ourselves. He is the justifier. He is the one who justifies. He is the one who declares us righteous and adds that to our account. We can't do it ourselves. We can't do it ourselves. Moralism is just as deadly as paganism. Does that mean there's no good morality in in Christ? Heavens, no. Does that mean, as some accuse Paul, well, if, if that's the case then, should we not sin all the more so that grace may abound all the more? Heavens, no. When we really recognize and really know his redemption and his propitiation and his justice, and it so invades our life as to give us new life in Christ, it changes us. And we don't want to sin. We do still sin. We don't want to do that. It's contrary to who we are now. It's contrary to to what we have been given in Christ. And our desire is to walk in and with Him. Paul said, I want you to understand this. This is vital. This righteousness of God through faith is given to all who believe. And it changes you radically. In verse 27, he's going to talk something about bragging and boasting. We'll get to that in a few weeks. As we come to this Advent season, as we come to think about the manger and the baby Jesus, everybody loves the baby Jesus because there's no demand upon your life. Do not look at the manger without seeing the cross. Do not look at the manger without recognizing that the reason he was born in that manger was in order that he might go to that cross. It was not a failure on his part. It was an accomplishment on his part. It was an it is finished on his part. It is I have now done what I came to do on his part. And for that, our hearts ought to be filled with gratitude and thanksgiving. Let's pray. Father, as we began this service this morning with Isaiah 40, and we began by Isaiah saying that there, there's a voice that cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. We know that 
that was to comfort the Israelites in Isaiah's day, but it was also to point to the coming of Christ. That passage goes on beyond what we read and says, a voice says, cry. That's your voice, Lord. Telling us to cry out. And Isaiah said, what shall I cry? And this is our message. All flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The the grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God stands. Forever. Father, that's our message. From you, through Christ, to your church, that we're to take to the world. The the grass withers, flower fades. Philosophy withers, philosophy fades. Moralism withers, moralism fades. Religionism withers and ritualism, religionism fades. But your word, O Lord, your word will stand forever. You said it, Lord, and it's true. You spoke it, and it is true. Help us, O Lord, to put aside Satan's desires for us not to believe it. Doesn't matter where we believe it or not, it's true. Help us abide, O Lord, in your truth and thereby be sanctified by that truth. Your word is truth. We thank you, Father. In Jesus' holy name. Amen. Our closing hymn.